Welcome to History, Culture, and Trauma with Ingrid Cochran. Over the next hour, Ingrid and guests will discuss how historical trauma impacts the human experience and how we can move towards collective healing. Now, here is your host, Ingrid Cochran. As so many times before, you probably are realizing that this is definitely not Ingrid's voice. So this is Matt. I am Matthew Portell, the co-host. Um, Ingrid is out changing the world and uh, sharing her message with others. So you will just be stuck with me tonight. But uh, as, as a reminder, I am the Director of Education and Outreach at Paces Connection. Um, I'm really excited to think that just a few weeks ago, I had just surpassed a year um, being here at Paces and what a brisk, uh, fast year it has been uh, being part of this remarkable team, learning and impacting and trying to connect cross-sector collaborations around Paces science. But uh, before we get started today, and I, I already spoke to Janet about this, I want to, um, I just want to bring to the attention of what happened. And most of you that listen often know that Ingrid and I are both located in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, so this week, um, yet again, unfortunately, uh, we had we are now the latest of uh, cities to experience a awful tragedy uh, of a school shooting. And if you hear, if you listen to this podcast, you know that I spent the last 15 years in public education, the last seven as a principal. Um, and this school that was involved was just a few miles actually from the school that I led uh, for seven years and um, just across the street from one of our community partners and uh, one of the, the young ladies that was in the classroom, she did not lose her life. She walks uh, a friend of mine, his, his dog every day as she campaigned for him to, to, to give her $2 a day. Um, to walk his dog. So these are relationships and lives that have been touched um, in ways that unfortunately we hope never occur. But um, I will tell you, uh, the city is one that does come together. And today I was part of that, of watching people come together in hopes of change. And so I just want to just want to make sure that before we get started today, that we do recognize the impact of a trauma uh, that happens, unfortunately, daily, not just across our country, uh, but across the globe. And that after what happened this week, there are, there's a ripple impact that occurs. And it's why we do what we do. It's why we try to um, educate others about what we know about the brain, the body, the mind, the soul, the community, and the power of relationships, um, and why we use pace of science the way we do, because it's not just the adversity that impacts, it's also the positive that impacts. And so I just wanted to start off with, with honoring what happened um, and those that, that were impacted, not just those that um, were, were um, that lost their lives, because we obviously are grieving that in a way that is indescribable, but also those that have been impacted, whether they were in the school or out of the school, or whether it was one of the Metro Nashville public school drivers that had to go pick up the children to get them relocated. There's so many pieces of this that um, that I wanted to make sure we brought up. So thank you for, for um, all the support 
that people are giving in this space because it's really important. And um, I think today's today's guest, which I'm really excited to talk to, is going to bring a wealth of knowledge right around so many different things because Janet Potsmantier and Janet, I hope I said your name correct. I didn't ask you before, but I hope that was close. If not, she's an award winning author, a curriculum developer, a trainer, a child advocate. She specializes in primary prevention programming. She's created successful, uh, created and successfully implemented child abuse prevention, relationship parenting, mental health, trauma, and youth suicide prevention education curricula for youth, children, and adults. She's a co-author of a book on early childhood development, The First Years, which was published by DK Publishing in 2001. She's instrumental in establishing several children's advocacy organizations in Houston and served as the founding director of the Center of School of Behavioral Health at Mental Health America of Greater Houston. She has spoken at local, state, and national conferences and specializes in hands-on interactive presentations. Janet is a recipient of the Unsung Hero Award from Children at Risk, the Distinguished Service Award from Child Builders, and the Trainer of the Year Award from the Texas Association of Education of Young Adults. Janet, those are all your accolades, but you, I have already, um, l- I've already learned that you are a amazing down to earth human being who just really was put on this earth to make a difference. So welcome to the podcast, Janet, and tell us a little bit more about you. How did you get into the work that I just, uh, just described and all of the things that you have been able to do? Well, uh, Matthew, first of all, thank you so much for inviting me here today, you and Ingrid. And um, I just want to extend my my sympathy um, and my empathy to you and your community, the loss of your children. Uh, I'm based in Texas. And as you know, we have the legacy of uh, Uvalde, uh, Santa Fe, uh, the the church that was shot up, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, it was it was heartbreaking to see what was happening and know that we all stand with you and your community, um, which very much leads to why why the answer to your question why how I got involved um, at the time I got involved there were no school shootings uh, but there was a lot of other bad stuff happening to children and uh, as I told uh, told you before we got started I think I was born as a preventionist, which was not even a word at the time that I got involved in this work. Um, I always looked at things like, yes, I could, you know, help somebody and and give them some food today, but why are they hungry? Um, Why do we have these problems? And what can we do to prevent them from ever happening? How can we stop bad things from happening to to our children and and our, anybody really? And um, I got into the work the exact opposite way by uh, training to become a, a child therapist, a play therapist. And when I, because I wanted to help people who you know had suffered, hoping I could take Humpty Dumpty and try and put the pieces back together so that the child could go ahead and still have a pretty good life. And uh, that was great. But then uh, when I graduated from my my program, my master's program, there was a very bad recession. And all of the jobs in uh, mental health um, and children's mental health dried up. And uh, it was impossible to get um, a position. So I ended up volunteering 
with a new program that was just getting started in Houston, which was designed to teach children skills to protect themselves from becoming victimized and uh, physical abuse, sexual abuse, other types of victimization. And so I volunteered, I got trained, and then they said they were looking for a coordinator. And I said, all right, I'm not going to get a job as a therapist anywhere, so I guess I'll do this. And fortunately, I was, um, I was uh, selected for the position, and it changed the trajectory of my life and everything I have done uh, since that time. Uh, and that's a, that's a pretty long time. Um, has been with the with through the eye of prevention, primary prevention, not secondary, but primary, and uh, trying to stop bad things from happening before they ever get started. So that's how I got into it, and I always love to tell that story because when young people share with me their, you know, oh, I can't find a job or I don't know what I want to do, and I say, you know, it's kind of like like baking a cake, you know, everything you do is an ingredient that goes into baking that cake. And if you, whatever skills you pick up, you can use later on. And when it's time, that cake will present itself to you and you'll be, have everything you need to be successful. And there's just so much we don't know. And don't be surprised if you end up exactly opposite of where you thought you were going to go. It's so true. And, and Janet, I, I, I'm smiling. And I know if you're listening on the podcast, you can't see that. I'm smiling because it, it makes me even reflect on my own professional journey, right? And I was late into education. I didn't start education until I was 29. I had some pretty um, unhealthy adaptive skills that I had developed in my early 20s. And I waited tables for several years. And I did valet parking. I did all kinds of things. And it's interesting because even through my my experience in education as a teacher, as an instructional coach, as an administrator, I still fell back on those, some of those skills that I did when I was waiting tables, especially multitasking, right? Like when I did valet parking, just those interactions, those human interactions, it is true. And if you would have told me um, when I started in education that I would be working for Paces Connection, um, doing cross-sector collaboration in organization, I probably wouldn't have believed you, right? Um, yeah. And I think anyone that's out there listening who may be new in their career or not, the career isn't going the way they should. It's such a valuable lesson to learn is that um, you never know what opportunity and you never know um, where your career will take you. Um, the fact that I'm on a podcast called History, Culture, Trauma. Um, if you would have told me that when I was teaching, I probably, again, would not have believed you. But passions uh, can take you many places. So speaking of those passions, right? Um, you mentioned a lot of kind of how you began to develop in, in, in this field. And um, when you said you can teach and support children in prevention of abuse and victimization, tell us, tell us more about that because um, it sure perked up my ears, but it also made me go, okay, what does that look like, right? And how do we do that with children? So you tell us a little bit more about what that process and, and how you came about doing that work. Sure. Um, you know, back when I when all this happened, so here I'm going to give away my age. Uh, it was 1982. And uh, in 1981, there were the Atlanta child martyrs. I don't know if you know anything about that, but um, probably about 30 uh, African-American young boys were kidnapped and uh, abused, and, and I think they were murdered as well. And um, it was horrendous, and everybody was saying, how can we keep these kids from being 
picked up by people that are going to harm them. And so a program was developed um, through the Dallas Mental Health Association um, to, to teach kids skills, uh, anti-victimization education skills. And that was the program I was just mentioned, you know, telling you about. Um, it is not a hard thing to do. You as an educator could probably pick this up in two minutes. Um, there's essential skills that children need to be taught um, regardless. And one of them is that they have the right to stand up for themselves. They have the right to protect their bodies. And if they're uncomfortable with something, they can say, stop that. I don't like it. That's a really key thing that they need to understand. Um, another thing, they need to be able to do that in a assertive way. Because if they do that, like, oh, don't do that. I don't like it. That's not going to get you very far. <laughs> and so being able to really use your voice, use your body language, use your eye contact, and being able to say that in a strong way is key as well. I think the other thing kids need to be taught and that we teach in these programs um, is how important it is to have a trusted adult to tell this to. Um, find an adult that you know you can trust and share this information with. And to also understand that it's never your fault. If some bigger person tries to touch you on the private parts of your body or is hurting you so much, it's leaving marks on your body, that is not okay. No matter what you did, nobody deserves to be hurt or touched like that. The other thing we teach them is to always understand that if you tell somebody and the, they don't believe you or they accuse you of doing something wrong, that you did something to deserve it, that it's okay to keep trying to tell other people. Okay. Keep trying to tell is super, super important. Um, and so those are some of the basic skills and all the programs that I have worked with in this particular arena are housed at an organization here in Houston called Child Builders. And that's, uh, w, you know, it's childbuilders.org. And so I encourage everybody to look and see. And as we start talking about some of the other programs I've been associated with, um, they are also there too. But these types of programs started in the early 80s. And there were quite a few that were developed across the nation. And just a few exist still today um, that have, have stood the test of time. I don't think it's as urgent. People don't pay as much attention to it because we're kind of like squirrels and shiny objects. And, oh, what? Now we're going to talk about suicide. Oh, now we're going to talk about mental health. Oh, now we're going to. So it's every decade something different. But that was really big in the 80s. And there were a lot of programs that were flourishing and helping kids at that time. Well, and uh, so much resonated with what you said is, um, you know, Ingrid and I, we did a uh, we did a podcast here last year with um Dr. Melissa Merrick from Prevent Child Abuse America. And we we really began to dig into the historical uh, impact of the idea that children should be seen and not heard. And we we started on we started really digging into that with her. And it made me think of that while you were talking, because um so many people feel that when children self-advocate, that it's disrespectful. Right. And coming from education, I saw that deeply rooted in in a lot of the educational processes to when children were self-advocating and telling you that they didn't feel safe or they didn't feel heard or they didn't feel like they belonged. 
it was responded with that's being disrespectful. And I think that those skills are so imperative, right? And I just saw a news story yesterday that this topic is not gone, right? And it was actually a therapist talking about self-advocacy in children. And um, like when somebody comes to give a child a hug and adults say, oh, give them a hug. No. Do you want to give them a hug? Asking the child to advocate for themselves because like many, that child may not want to give that person a hug. Um, And so I think that you've been doing this work for a long time. And the good news is it's still here. But there's so much work to still be done. And what have you seen some of the changes since then? Because you talked about how we kind of jump back and forth. What have you seen the changes that have occurred, but yet the core principles that continue to stay the same? What do you see those two different things as? It's a really good question. Um, I think we're distracted by the news of the day. Um, And in education, especially, we're going to jump. If somebody in a school next to ours is having good results with whatever reading program they have, we're going to not research it. We're just going to say, well, they're doing great. So we're going to get that program too. And surely we'll be great too. Well, maybe that school is doing great, but it may not be the right program for your population. Maybe there's a different, more, you know, different targeted type of program that your kids might need. Um, And so then everybody ends up getting this new program. And um, then you find out they haven't done any research on it. And then you find out that not only is it not that effective, but it's not really, it's, it's, it's harmful because kids aren't learning how to read. This actually happened here in, in the Houston area in my children's elementary school when they were learning how to read. So, um, and so I think that that's the constant that we still do that. We still jump from thing to thing because we're, and I understand that because we all want to do the very best for our kids. We all care so deeply that if we see something good happening for kids, we want in. And that is comes from a place of, of pure caring for children. I think we just need to be uh, more intentional and slow down a little bit. Um, make sure, like I serve on the campus advisory team for our, or well, the school health advisory team for our school district. And I did it for the campuses when my kids were in school. And every time somebody comes to present a new program about one of these, you know, behavioral health issues, Oh, I say, that's lovely. Can you please tell me your research that shows that it's effective? And then the presenter often stumbles around a lot. Oh, we just go to our website. Or yeah, we did a study with 10 kids, uh, but we didn't have a control group. You know, all that kind of stuff. I'm going, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I'm that nasty person in the room that everybody else is going, oh, we love this program. We have to have it. And I say, show me that it works. And so I think that's what we need to, that's the constant that we need to, to bring in is, is make sure that even and that first of all, most of what we do works, but also have the opportunity that for new programs to emerge that meet a need. And, and as they emerge to put the dollars behind investing in really good research to show that they work. Uh, that's the problem. That's very hard to come by getting 
um, research and evaluation dollars. People just want to fund the program, but always pushing for that. And, and sometimes something brand new that doesn't have any research around behind it and people do it as a pilot and it, then it has phenomenal results. Then we can say, this one really does work. You really can invest in this one and feel confident that it will help your kids. Oh, you kids just described education to a T. And I actually, I know, I know, I actually, I, I, I've kind of talked about the circle of attempt, attack, abandon, right? There's also that. Um, but you're right. Um, and it's interesting because in the work that I did at the school that I led, people wanted to know what program I used. And do you know what my response is always? None. We didn't use a program, Right. But I can tell you about what we did. And you're right. People do want to know the research. And it just didn't exist for me because we were doing it on the front end, which is why I don't talk about a program. It's about these are things that shifts, mindset shifts, education we gave ourselves, things that we did that had a, that we know had an impact. We can show the data, but it isn't longitudinal um, deep data. But yes, yeah, so true that that is the case um, that... We just throw things at the wall and hope it sticks. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. and, and it's funny because education is so data driven. Every other decision in a lot of spaces are made with data, but in a lot, it's a program. You're exactly right. I 100% agree. So, I mean, when you're talking about all of these organizations and things that you've been involved in, right? And it sounds like they all kind of are, are still in that same idea of work. How have you been able to, to do all of these transitional things to move from advocacy to what we mentioned before of building, um, to teach children to build development and positive, uh, children's positive dis discipline development about their own selves and how they can become parent? How do you make those transitions? And then let's talk about those, some of the more of those programs. Well, sure. Um, as... <clears throat> As I was doing that work, teaching children to protect themselves from becoming victims of physical or sexual abuse, I had to ask the question again, why, do I, why am I teaching kids to protect themselves from this? Why haven't I figured out how to keep this from happening to kids? Um, they shouldn't have to have a program like this. And so I developed a program called Parents Under Construction that teaches children today the parenting skills and the child development information that they'll need as future parents. And I did that because I recognized that so much of the, the, the abuse that children were suffering um, was due to the fact that the parents simply didn't have any knowledge. Not that there are a lot of bad people out there, there's a lot of great people out there, but they just don't have the information that they need. And uh, so they don't know about child development, they don't know about positive, positive discipline, so they keep on doing what was done to them. And for some of us, that was really good. And then for a whole lot of people, that was not really good. So you perpetuate that dysfunctional or even abusive parenting cycle from generation to generation. So I felt if we could teach kids that information, then maybe we could have in the next generation parents that could be mentally healthy, that don't use harsh punishment, that understand what their children are trying to show them by what they say and what they do, um, and, and be uh, loving and nurturing parents. Um, I felt um, that, that this would be maybe a way that we could, we could stop that cycle. 
And I, I also recognize that a lot of people have parenting education programs for adults. Uh, and that makes everybody thinks, why would you teach kids parenting skills? That's something you do for, for adults. And I said, yeah, but when was the last time you got an adult to come to your parenting education class? Because the only time we know that people have to go to a parenting education class is when they're involved with CPS. And so it's kind of like if I'm a quote unquote regular parent and I don't have a CPS case and somebody in the community is holding a parenting education class, it's kind of like walking in and saying, hi, I'm abusive, a parent, you know, even though you're not, but that's kind of how they feel. So it's tremendous stigma against uh, even attending a parent education class. And then the other thing is, is just like all of us, when we start to get into a pattern of doing something or a habit or a certain way, it can be really hard to change those, those practices. If I, like, for example, I have to have something chocolate or some ice cream every night before, you know, I have to have dinner. And I don't like changing that. <laughs> you don't want to take that away from me. And um, I'm going to hold on to that pretty strong, even though I know it's not good for my cholesterol, it's not good for my blood pressure, et cetera, et cetera. I'm still going to do it because I like doing it, right? And it has other benefits for me. So thinking about that and applying that to parenting, um, yes, I may at some level recognize that what I'm doing is not so great. On the other hand, you're giving me some newfangled information, and I don't know if I'm going to try that because that's kind of weird. Or maybe I do go home and try it, and of course, what's going to happen? Kids are going to act worse, right? Because they were expecting you to be consistent in the way you reacted to them, whether you were not so great or you were terrific. And then you're changing so they're going to say, uh-uh, we like routine, we like consistency, you're changing, and I'm going to act out so that I can get you back to doing all that other stuff you're doing before. So that was, those were some other reasons why we developed the parenting education for children curricula. Yes, I mean, I, I again, it resonated with me. Uh, most parents aren't going to volunteer for a parenting class because most parents parent the way they were parent. Therefore, that's what good parenting looks like. Um, and we also call that the intergenerational transmission of trauma when it's not right. It's that passing down of um, family traditions that may not be healthy. Right. And parenting is part of, of one of those is I don't know. I need parenting classes. And there is something that I think I know of myself, I'm like, there's some days I'm like, oh, I need somebody to help me out. Like I have a 12 year old and he is, he is a very spirited 12 year old. I don't know where he gets a spiritedness from at all. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where he gets, but there are times I'm like, wait, if I wouldn't have had all of this training and all of this information that I have learned on my own, really outside of education, um, I would be a completely different parent. I would be a parent as my parents were. And I don't blame my parents because my parents did the best that they could and they were not bad parents, right? But it was also like, if I can just adjust, if we all adjust a little bit down this line and our kids begin to understand what good positive discipline is, it is a win-win, right? But I agree that getting parents is challenging because most parents don't, think I need parenting. So what a great first start. And we've, we've talked so much about 
kind of that beginning of what do we teach? How do we teach kids to advocate themselves all the way down to how can we connect kids to even now to what they could be as parents? Um, and when we come back from the break, we're going to dig in a little bit more around um, the extens- the extensiveness of work you've done in, in these different spaces. So we will be back in just a few moments. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. In this polarizing age of misinformation, it is critical to examine the lessons of the past on history, culture, and trauma. Ingrid Cochran, CEO of Paces Connection, and her guests will explore historical trauma and outline how our collective past shades our perception of today's world and our shared experiences. In this podcast, we will examine the impact of past atrocious cultural events and the impact of the systemic trauma of racism and poverty on the human experience. Ingrid and her guest will also outline what is needed for our collective healing. Please join us for History, Culture, and Trauma, Thursdays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Your life. Your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. You're listening to History, Culture, and Trauma with Ingrid Cochran. If you have questions for Ingrid or her guests or want to share your story, join us on the show at 866-472-5791. That's 866-472-5791. Now, back to the show. Here again is Ingrid Cochran. Well, here again, not actually Ingrid Cochran, but it is Matthew Portel, the co-host. You know, as hard as I try to be as remarkable as Ingrid is, I just, I can't measure up to to Ingrid Cochran, but I do my best and uh, really excited to to kind of continue this conversation uh, with Janet. And before the break, we were, we were talking about a variety of things. And one of those things was really, how do we teach children skills to prevent abuse and victimization? And we went into in self-advocacy and how that uh, sometimes uh, as adults, we we see we see advocacy sometimes as disrespect, but we really have to teach our kids to be able to self-advocate 
um, in any space, whether that is um, at home, at school, at church, in the neighborhood, it doesn't matter that self-advocacy is so clear. And then we went to about talking to kids um, about positive discipline and what those look like and how as children, we can prepare them for adulthood, right? And maybe even be in future parents in that. And as we return back from the break, um, Janet, uh, first, I'm really glad you're back. You didn't leave. That's a good sign. So we're <laughs> having a good conversation. <laughs> but, <so> much fun. <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about um, another program that you've been involved with, and that is teaching. Well, before I get in there, I want to say I, I really am excited about this part of hearing because I have a 12 year old and, um, you know, it's interesting what kids perceive as relationships and he's getting into that preteen and these conversations are happening, right? And these conversations are happening with me and we, we try to have as open conversations as we want. And it's so challenging at that age to figure out what relationships are, right? And how to navigate them and what does healthy look like and what do boundaries look like and all those things. But you, you've been part of a, a program that teaches youth healthy relationship skills so they can choose their future partners wisely. And as you, I want to know more about this selfishly because I have a 12-year-old. And so if I'm feverishly writing, it's because I'm trying to learn from you. But talk about that as a preventative of domestic violence and how that program works and, and what, it, what it does for, for kids and turning into adults. Well, thank you so much, Matthew, for asking that. Um, like the Parents Under Construction, where we're teaching kids parenting skills, um, teaching kids about healthy relationships are two of the most important things that we need to be successful in life. Um, and when you think about all the jobs we have, and like for you think about like getting a job at McDonald's and you need to be able to know how to read and write and make change. Well, you don't have to do that anymore, but how to put the fries out and, you know, whatever. There's a lot of skills that go into that. And McDonald's doesn't hire you and then say, okay, go, go fry these fries on day one. They train you, right? And then they mentor you. And then if you do a good job, they'll promote you to, you know, supervisor. And if you're not doing a good job, you're fired, right? So correlate that with preparing people to be good parents or preparing people to know what healthy relationships are. They're two of the most important things that make for a successful and happy life, but we get absolutely no education or training for it, none whatsoever. It's really not mandated in most states at this time still today, sadly, sadly. Um, because if you ask the kids um, who have gone through these programs, they'll say these programs are more important than anything else I've ever learned in school. Um, so when it comes to the healthy relationship education, I asked another question, okay? The first question was, why do I have to teach kids to protect themselves from abuse? Why are people hurting kids? And so that's why I developed parent-centered construction, give kids those skills so they can hurt, you know, stop this dysfunctional cycle from going into other generations. But then I said, the role, I thought to myself, the role of the significant other um, the co-parent, whatever you want to call them in the child's life and the relationship between the two parents is key for a healthy child, for healthy child development, mental health, all of that. And we know only, you know, only too sadly that divorce is one of the aces, right? 
Um, and that's what happens when, you know, there's an, a lot of reasons why divorce happens, but a lot of times it's because we, we never knew what a healthy relationship was. We never experienced that ourselves. We never saw it in anybody else. Um, and we didn't know what to look for when choosing a life partner, or we just slid into a relationship because it was comfortable and met our needs, or we got pregnant and, you know, something, something like that. So those are unhealthy ways to get started in a relationship. Some um, education, relationship education programs just teach about warning signs of domestic violence, which is so important, just critical. But the program that we adapted, this, this was a program that we adapted from the Dibble Institute. It's dibbleinstitute.org. It's called Relationship Smarts Plus. And we adapted that program and brought it to Houston because we wanted to give kids that whole spectrum of everything they needed to have healthy relationships so that they could be healthy parents and keep safe, et cetera. And um, that program is terrific. It uh, is very comprehensive. It helps kids understand uh, there's, it's very activity-based. So it helps kids, for example, when you're talking about what people bring into a relationship, uh, it is called a baggage activity where you literally, you know, go through and see all the different kinds. What kind of baggage are you willing to accept being brought into a relationship with somebody? Um, so that's, that's a great activity. Um, helping kids understand the elements of a truly intimate, healthy relationship between people, um, helping kids to understand, again, those warning signs and what to do about it. And then extending now into social media and other areas uh, so that kids know, because so many relationships today are online, right? And they're not really relationships in, in the truest sense of the word. And especially during the pandemic, so many of our kids did not have the opportunity to engage with their peers and do all the normal developmental things that kids do growing up. And so I, I would wager to say that most of our children are a couple of years behind developmentally, especially in their social emotional development because of the pandemic. Uh, we also know that many of our kids are suffering from significant mental health issues. It's a, a pandemic in and of itself. So all of that layered together, it's going to be really challenging to form healthy relationships with, with people. I know you probably know, Matthew, as an educator, that um, when the kids came back um, after the lockdown and everybody was saying, yay, the kids are back. We're so happy. And then all hell broke loose in the schools. And it was like worse than ever, the worst year ever. And then this next year after that last year, not so great either, slightly better, but still tremendous mental health and acting out, and bullying, violence. Kids don't know how to relate to each other. Um, and so hopefully this year is seeing a little bit better. I think we've, we've gotten programs in place. There's been money infused in mental health programs to be able to serve the kids in a better way than before. Um, so it's probably a little better. But all that to say that these social-emotional learning programs are key to children being healthy, developing to be healthy adults, regardless of what they ended up doing in life. You could say that you're a Harvard-educated MBA on Wall Street, and you live in a mansion in LA on top of a hill and you know whatever, but that doesn't mean you're going to be happy. It doesn't mean that you're going to have um, somebody who loves you and stays with you the rest of your life. It doesn't mean that you're going to 
do a good job parenting your kids, uh, et cetera. So they, these life skills that we're trying to teach through these programs, we feel are just essential and should be a cornerstone of the curricula in, in every school and in every state. You know, I, I just put out a graphic on my social media that, that, that spoke to what you just said. And what I, my, my, uh, my, my, my statement was, I'm shocked that adults are shocked that our kids are dysregulated because they're experienced, they've experienced a pandemic, they're experiencing violence at school, they're experiencing gun violence at school, they're experiencing this overwhelming political divide, they're experiencing all of this. Many of these things, my generation, the generation before me and the generation after me has never experienced. And so I'm, I'm shocked that we have a large amount of adults that are shocked that kids are in the space that they are. And I'm even more shocked, Janet, that we have politicians that are trying to stop us from teaching the social and emotional health of kids to talk about empathy, to talk about healthy boundaries, to talk about self-advocacy. And it's because I think what we talked about before change is really scary and never before have we ever really taught self-advocacy and understand your emotional um, space and being able to self-regulate and know what co-regulate is and all of these things that to be quite honest are the imperative part of the human experience but it's a little bit different than what we may have experienced before and it's almost like with time we know better. I mean, it's a novel concept, right? I mean, thank goodness we're still not uh, back where we were uh, 400 years ago, right? It, it is this idea that the more we know, the better we do. And I think we're right now, we know better. But like so many times, the change has been hard. We're just getting over that hump of like, hey, we can actually do better. Um, but it's challenging, right? And I think you're right. I was the I was a principal when school came back in. And boy, were we super excited. But boy, and we had been doing trauma-informed education for many years. This wasn't new concept. And we kept in contact with families. And we broke the rules and delivered food when we were told we weren't supposed to. We did all of those things but we didn't truly understand the impact of social isolation and where kids were and the amount of stress and even trauma many were bringing back. Um, and this ripple impact we're still continuing to see today. And I wanna go back to what I said before, Janet, when you and I talked before, this isn't a kid problem. This is an adult problem. We have to begin to look differently at how we're operating because the kids are coming with things they've never experienced. We can't continue to put this idea of fi kids fixing themselves just because we give them the skills to do it. We have to begin to have these conversations on how do we get programs in every school where kids self-advocate, where kids know that it's not okay for anybody to touch anything on them without asking. Right? How do we get programs where we can teach children positive discipline and to be even better, Janet, where we can use positive discipline, not reward punishment. We know that does not work. 
That is that has been disproven many, many times. And how can we get kids and get programs to kids that we can teach them what a healthy relationship is? Because you know and I know that kids reflect what they've experienced. And the old the old saying of the apple doesn't fall from the tree is scientifically proven, right? That right. kids do what they know. So what do you see? What do you see this work looking like in the future? It, 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 it hasn't necessarily, the core hasn't changed, right? But you've made some major adjustments. When you talked about online, true. Online, I mean, it's a different world that you and I didn't experience. Exactly. So what do you see this work looking like as we navigate so many changes so quickly? And, and what do you look, what do you, what is your hope for our youth? as you began to continue to push the paradigm, continue to advocate and have kids advocating for themselves. What do you see the future of the work looking like? That's such a great question. I, I feel, I feel that it's, you know, where I live, it's, it's not just people not supportive of social emotional learning, for example, they want to shut it down. They see something evil in it. Um, and they want to deny that children have the need to develop in this way. Um, and just focus on the basics, the academics. And there's a, a great lack of understanding about that you can't learn uh, without a healthy relationship with the person trying to teach you. And you can't learn if you've experienced a bunch of trauma uh, or you're worried or anxious or whatever. It's just not going to happen. So attending to the mental health, the social emotional needs of children is key if we want to move them along. So as far as advocacy, I think uh, we have our work cut out for us um, and, and to be able to educate and inform um, those who live among us that don't understand how important this is which can be a challenge because, um, you know, people hear things the way they want to and they can spin it in a different way. So we, we have to be very careful and come to uh, some good agreement how we do that with our, with our fellow advocates. Um, I feel one of the things that you and I talked about is um, during the time I was, you know, developing all these programs, I realized that even though we could teach kids out the wazoo, all these great skills. If we don't have laws and policy that support it, we're, we're wasting our time in a lot of ways. Um, we're twisting in the wind. And so I became, uh, early on in my career, I became involved in advocacy, uh, knowing that if we could work with our lawmakers, our politicians, our legislators um, to get good policies and good legislation for on behalf of kids, that that would be another avenue for helping uh, the world to be the beautiful place we want it to be. Um, and so I, I encourage everybody listening to, to do like what, you know, what, what, what your heart speaks to you, speak out for these issues um, and do it in a way. This is hard for me. This is really hard for me because I am very passionate and I can get super angry when I see injustice, you know, and I have to learn myself to be able to um, to say things, to communicate with people who may feel differently from me and in a very non-aggressive, 
very understanding, very openly communicative way and uh, taking as much emotion out of it as I can. Super hard for me, but mm. we all have to, I think, be able to do that or we're really never going to get anywhere. Um, we don't know how to talk to each other anymore. So mm. I think um, for me, taking as much advantage as much training as I can to help me learn to modulate uh, my uh, emotionally regulate myself so that I can be a, an effective advocate is something that, that I'd like to do. And it just, it, what is, what is the goal for me? Um, why I continue this work is because um, I feel for those who, you know, you've probably heard this, it's an old thing for much has been given to much is expected. I've had a beautiful life. Um, I've not had to struggle in, in many ways that other people have. And I don't want people to have to struggle. So many people have to struggle. And so I feel committed to making it, it, making it better. And the other thing for me is um, leaving the world a better place than it was when I came in, which is very interesting because I feel the world was in a much better place <laughs> when I was born uh, and a young person than it is now. So I think... Um, I have a lot ahead of me. I have a lot of work ahead of me. Um, and I encourage everybody listening to keep fighting um, in a good, positive way for all the great things that um, this organization and, uh, you know, PACE's Connection and CTIP and your organization, Matthew, uh, Trauma-Informed Educators Network, all of these organizations are doing such great work. Uh, so advocate and at the same time implement these programs because you are touching hearts and minds and you are you are changing the future with the work that you do well and janet i told you before and and i i want to speak to it now is i was encouraged today because i did advocate today and i was at the the capital of tennessee here in nashville with thousands of other people and i looked around and i paused for a minute because like you i'm very spirited right and i tell people most people don't get my 23-year-old self. My 23-year-old self is certainly not my 45-year-old self. My 23-year-old self, you're going to hear every thought that comes into my head in the matter of minutes, all of it. It just all would come out, right? And I will admit today I did, I did raise my voice at one point because um, something that one of our lawmakers said was um, inexcusable. And it, it, to me, it, there was a there was a space in which I needed to raise my voice. But the positive of today that I walked away with is I looked around and over 50 to 60% of the people that were standing around me were our youth. They were our kids who are saying, we are tired of it. We want something to be done. And that to me is encouraging. I know there's this idea that our youth are they're so into social media and they're wanting to be TikTok stars. And it's all true. But I can also tell you that they also see opportunity in a platform to advocate. They also see injustice and they certainly do not want it to continue. They get to see injustice happening live where you and I had to see it on a TV. There's, there's opportunity here while we build the skills that you have so expressed so well that you've been doing since the 1980s, that now, like, and that wasn't that long ago, by the way, that was not that long ago, but now, that. <laughs> look at the ripple impact that 
I guarantee you some of the kids that started in your development are now parents raising kids under the structure that you helped support. And I think next to me, I guarantee there were kids that were taught how to advocate because they were doing it and they were doing it well. And I also want to say too that Ingrid and I have talked about on this podcast, there's also some parameters that have been set in place historically for people like you and me. We have different rules than people of color or our LBGTQ community or our, our, and now in Tennessee, our trans community. All of these communities play by different rules have to play by different roles than you and I do. And I think about that often. And today on the on the 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 well at the US Capitol, there was a young black representative who began to use a literal megaphone. And I'm watching this social media of shaming that he didn't go with the quorum. And I thought at what point the silence does being at that point of always being calm and seeing nothing done. It's really hard. And I think that there are times and spaces that raising your voice can be okay. Um, it is out of respect, out of respect for those you represent and out of respect for those in which we support in our work. There were times in my principalship, Janet, that I raised my voice. Um, and I will be honest, it didn't really help. Um, but boy, it felt good. And so <laughs> yeah. I know there are times it's appropriate and it's not always appropriate. But we have to examine why. Why can we not in some spaces when whatever's happening, happening, whether it's children dying in schools, whatever happening, why can't it invoke some of that emotion for us to be able to be heard? And so I, I just want to leave with that thought because advocacy is really important. And the fact that you have dedicated your life to building not only your own advocacy, but the advocacy of individuals and a collective group of people to embedder themselves and those around them. That speaks to the volume of your work. And I hope you've paused even in this little hour that we've been together and think, wow, wow, I've done some pretty remarkable things because you have. Um, and if you, I know you're humble enough not to do that, but I want to tell you Thank you for the work you've done. Thank you for the foundation you have set for so many people, not just those that you've served, but those that you've supported, um, because this work is important and it's more important now, I believe, than it ever has been, um, because we continue to see a changing tide of everything across the globe. So thank you so much. If people want to know more about how to get a hold of you or, or find out more about your work, where could they find that? Um, well, uh, sure. It's uh, my my uh, email is uh, janet.posementier at gmail.com. And if you go to Child Builder, C-H-I-L-D-B-U-I-L-D-E-R-S dot org or Dibble, D-I-B-B-L-E dot org for relationship. Those are some places. And I just want to say, Matthew, um, you're re uh, incredible and in that you're an educator and you've seen all of this and you make such a difference. You have clout because you know it, you lived it. And I thank you for all you've done to bring trauma-informed education to our kids. You're remarkable. Thank you. Well, thank you. And um, for those of you who have listened, thank you for being here. Thank you for continuing to listen. Give us a like and a, um, and a review. 
Uh, but it's been great. And we will see you next week. Thank you, Janet. And Thank you. you all will get to hear from Ingrid next week, but see you next week. Thanks for listening to the show today. We hope we have helped to give you a better understanding of trauma and how historical trauma affects the human experience. Join us every Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. We wish you a beautiful week.